Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med Erika Chenoweth, som er professor i civile modstandsbevægelser ved Kennedy School ved Harvard University i Boston, Massachusetts. Hi there. Hi there. Thank you so much for taking your time and talking to us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for inviting me. Flittige læsere af Dagbladet Information vil kende Chenoweths navn og især Chenoweths forskning. Fordi Chenoweth har gennem de sidste 20 år udviklet sig til en enorm autoritet på spørgsmålet om, hvornår virker civil modstand, hvornår virker ikke voldelig modstand, og hvad skal der til for at demonstrationer, boykot, gadeprotester, alle mulige former for modstand, de lykkes. Chenoweth har lavet et meget omfattende empirisk arbejde og har undersøgt alle de største tilfælde af civil modstand i det 20. århundrede, ikke bare i Vesten, men i hele verden. Vi er rigtig mange, som sætter meget stor lid til sociale bevægelser, og vi er en lille smule progressive cheerleaders for de demonstrationer, der peger vores vej, og holder næsten altid med demonstranter, når de står på pladsen foran paladset og kræver en omvæltning. Men det Chenoweth har, det er, at Chenoweth har systematiseret sin viden om vores viden om, om alt det her. Og ud af det er blandt andet opstået det, der hedder 3,5%-reglen. Det er en regel, som sociale bevægelser meget ofte påberåber sig og bruger som reference. Pointen med 3,5%-reglen, det er, at hvis man til en modstandsbevægelse kan mobilisere 3,5% af befolkningen til aktiv deltagelse, så vinder man. Det viser i hvert fald erfaringerne fra de sidste 100 år. Derfor er der rigtig mange, der er sigtet efter 3,5% deltagelse i deres mobiliseringer. I den her samtale der fortæller Chenoweth, at 3,5%-reglen den galt historisk i det 20. århundrede. Det er overhovedet ikke sikkert, at den også gælder i det 21. århundrede. Den galt historisk for kampe mod repressive regimer. Det er overhovedet ikke sikkert, at den også gælder for klimabevægelser. Fordi man kan jo faktisk sagtens forestille sig, at man kan mobilisere 3,5% af befolkningen for en hurtigere grøn omstilling. Men samtidig ser vi på den anden side 3,5% af befolkningen, som kan være mobiliseret imod den grønne omstilling, fordi de synes, det allerede går for hurtigt. Alle de her modstandskampe, alle de her bevægelser, alle de her demonstrationer, alle de her aktionsformer, hvor folk de prøver at forandre verdens gang gennem deres eget engagement. Dem er Chenoweth den, jeg kender, som ved allermest om, og det er det, vi taler om i det følgende. God fornøjelse. You know, we are indirectly mentioned in, in, your, in your book, because we were born out of the resistance against the German occupation, so we are hopelessly, we are hopeless romantics about civil resistance. <laughs> yes. uh, And every time there's a demonstration somewhere in the, in the, in the world, we immediately cheer for it. Uh, it's not if it's a right-wing demonstration, but, you know, we have this inclination towards civil resistance. But that's not how you started. Uh, you you write in, in your book that you were a detached skeptic of civil resistance. Can you tell us about your own way into this field? Sure. Um, when I first started studying the topic, I was finishing my PhD And I was very interested in political violence and strategic studies and a more uh, an orientation toward political conflict that uh, really felt like violence was the most important thing to study. And it was the most dominant form of political conflict in the world. And uh, so I went to a, a workshop that was actually focused on nonviolent resistance. 
and uh, learned a lot of really interesting ideas there and wanted to test some of those ideas. And so Maria Stefan, who was also at the workshop and I paired up and, um, and I was actually uh, pretty sure that we were gonna find that nonviolent resistance movements were as effective or maybe less effective than armed struggle. Um, and uh, in fact, we found kind of the inverse, which is that uh, armed struggle is actually less effective um, than unarmed struggle if you actually place them side by side and analyze like cases. So, so does this did this also understand your change your understanding of power in itself? Because uh, you know we we the way we think about resistance is often a reflection of how what we, how we think about power. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think that my orientation toward power was that um, you know the the the. The entity that has the power is the one that controls the most weapons and can coerce other people to its will. And um, in this research, I was introduced to other ideas um, by people like Hannah Arendt and Jean Sharp, who are making the argument that um, power flows from the monopoly on legitimacy. And that, in fact, if you have to use violence to compel others to your will, um, that's a sign of your weakness um, because you cannot... Um, get people to voluntarily come along with you. And that the most powerful uh, governments in the world are the ones that actually enjoy uh, voluntary cooperation from their populations and don't have to spend a lot of money on arms uh, in order to uh, coerce them and bend them to its will. So, so there was a theoretical understanding or, or a, a, a theoretical part of your studies, but you also did a lot of empirical studies that have been very, very helpful to our our newspaper. We've been Googling your name for advice in writing editorials many, many, many times. Can you tell us a little bit about your empirical findings? Sure. So um, initially, uh, for uh, the first part of this project with Maria Stefan, we collected data on every um, maximalist campaign, that is uh, every movement that was trying to overthrow an incumbent national leader of a country or every movement that was trying to declare independence, either through secession or through kicking out a foreign military occupation or other form of self-determination. And we looked at every country in the world from 1900 to 2006 and collected 323 of those cases. And then we basically looked at the primary method of resistance in each of those cases and uh, categorize them as either violent or nonviolent or a mix of both. And uh, what we found is that the, the most successful of those uh, campaigns were the ones that were relying primarily on nonviolent resistance, um, followed by those that were primarily nonviolent with a violent flank. And then um, the, those that relied primarily on armed resistance were actually those with the lowest success rate. And are there any other characteristics of the successful uh, instances of, of resistance? I think we tend to favor here in Denmark because we're a very peaceful and romantic country, the spontaneous uh, movements and the spontaneous uh, re resistance. But, but it appears from your book that, that actually planning is very important. Yes. And part of the reason for that is because there are a number of ways to differentiate the successful nonviolent campaigns from the failed ones. And uh, what we found is that there are really four factors that um, that impact success or failure. The first is the ability to garner a very large and diverse population to support the movement and mobilize alongside it. Um, the second is the ability to elicit defections from the opponent's pillars of support. So that means that 
um, security forces, economic elites, civil servants refused to go along with the incumbent. Um, and in fact, in some cases, even join the movement. Um, the third factor associated with success is the ability to innovate new tactics, which is also mostly possible with very large campaigns. And in particular, to not just um, rely on street demonstrations and protests, but also shift to forms of non-cooperation like strikes. And then the fourth um, factor is the ability to elicit backfire from repression. So in other words, um, the ability to um, to to make incidents of repression counterproductive for the opponent, um, and in fact, win more supporters um, if there are incidents of repression. Those four factors tend to be more associated with nonviolent resistance campaigns than they do with armed resistance campaigns, which is part of the reason why nonviolent campaigns are more likely to have succeeded, and especially in the 20th century. Um, but uh, as you uh, alluded to in your question, it can take a lot of good strategy in order to achieve those four factors, right? So, um, so movements that have a sort of discernible leadership and are able to have some degree of cooperation among the different entities in or, uh, in a mass movement coalition are better able to get large numbers of diverse sectors of society to build a strategy that does elicit defections and to innovate new tactics that are likely to elicit backfire. So. Um, so in other words, you're right that um, movements that that plan, that have a strategy um, and that have a leadership that can enact that strategy are probably more likely to succeed than movements that are improvising, uh, especially when they're improvising against an extremely committed and brutal opponent. You know, you know people would, I think, automatically think that it's very, it must be very different if you're in the protest movement or exercising civil resistance in, for instance, Russia, or if you're the yellow vest in France, how much do these factors vary from country to country and from context to context? I think the four factors are pretty standard across contexts, but certainly the context matters in how hard it is to achieve those four factors, right? So, um, so in Russia, it's certainly going to be more difficult today um, to uh, build a coalition that is an opposition coalition that's in, uh, in a very high capacity to transform the political scene in Russia than it was in Russia, say, 20 years ago or 25 years ago or 30 years ago, when actually um, it wasn't as hard to build um, an opposition coalition. Part of that's, of course, because of the way that the Russian government and um, Vladimir Putin's control of it has adapted to potential challenges from, uh, from the domestic scene and the opposition. Um, and part of it is just because of new technology and the ways that um, that, that can kind of uh, impact the government's capacity uh, to interrupt cooperation. Um, and, you know, I think one of the ironies is that uh, democracies also struggle, uh, movements that are in democracies also struggle to unite. And part of the reason for that is because civil society and democracy is actually very robust in many places. And that means that it can also be quite fragmented and competitive. Um, and so actually uniting behind a common cause and really building those four factors um, can actually be a challenge. And so there are certainly, like you alluded to, different challenges depending on which type of country you're in. Um, but I, I think most movements need to still achieve those four things somehow in order to succeed. I think I'm very curious about the time factor here, because if we look at the index in your book, some of these 
movement or some of these acts of civil resistance, they go on for decades. And I imagine that if you've been there for a couple of decades, you say this was a failed movement. And then, for instance, the anti-apartment apartheid movement, they won in the end, but after decades of uh, of struggle, how, how important is the time factor? Yeah, it's it's very important, actually. Um, one interesting descriptive statistic is that it takes the average campaign in our data set about two and a half years to run its course. And I think that's important to know because, um, you know, a lot of uh, movement organizers or leaders that I've either interviewed or interacted with uh, rarely say that they have a three to five year strategy, right? They, they usually say they're trying to get through next week. Um, but if we know that the average campaign takes two and a half years or potentially longer to run its course, then that implies uh, the need for a longer time horizon and a capacity to strategize through a longer term uh, conflict. The second thing I'll say is that a new book that just came out in 2022 is, is by a, a scholar named um, Ali Kadavar. And he argues that actually the more long lasting resistance movements are the ones that are the most likely to be associated with successful democratic transition. South Africa is one of the cases that he relies on. There are other cases like Poland um, that also bear this out. And the argument is that um, when movements last a long time, um, that means that it gives more time for organizations, political organizations to arise and to be associated with the movement, to negotiate different um, potential competing visions for the future of the country, um, and to iron out differences among the opposition um, in a way that then gives them much more power and leverage when the time comes for mass mobilization. Um, so, you know, he sort of argues that a slower approach that acknowledges the importance of building a real political opposition um, is one that actually is going to be less vulnerable to, you know, collapse in the key moments, but also to counter-revolution. Um, which, you know, if you think about the, the more kind of spontaneous uprisings like the Egyptian revolution in 2017, there was certainly a number of different political organizations, but because they were largely responding to events in Tunisia, um, they didn't really have time to build the revolutionary coalition. They tried to build it in the, in the you know, important three weeks of the Tahrir Square occupation. Um, but when the time came for Mubarak to step aside and Scaf to step in, the only political organization that was really formed um, and prepared to capture that political moment was the Muslim Brotherhood and then the military. And so, you know, the the sort of trajectory of democracy that was going to be possible there um, ended up being quite short lived because it was uh, the, the, the sort of transitional um, government was largely a, a negotiated pact between the Muslim Brotherhoods in the military, and in the long term, the military was going to seize power again, in, which they did in 2013. So, um, so you know, the, the argument is that if you have more time to iron out differences and build a, a, a coalition, um, then you're less vulnerable to those types of instabilities. And, and I, I think that goes with a lot of the failed revolutions that, that, that I know of that, for instance, the original Iranian revolution, you had a very strong revolutionary upheaval. But then when they actually dethroned uh, Reza Shah, then, then the, the only factor in society who were able to build institutions were, yeah. was uh, 
were were the were the Islamic authorities because they had uh, institutions to put in place of, of what was taken away. And of course, for the leftists, that was a disaster. Yeah, and I I think in that case too, um, it's important to note that the that the the kind of theocrats in that setting did not have a commitment either to democracy or to nonviolence, right? And so they were willing to purge um, the leftists and the secularists and the monarchists um, and drive them out of the country or imprison them. Um, and uh, so that, you know, that that's just a, a, a note there that, you know, it, it also kind of depends who's in the coalition um, <laughs> and whether they're able to assert their will over others. And, and if they're willing to do so with, with violent force, um, then that, you know, that that's not going to result in a democracy. It's um, it, another example of this is actually the Russian Revolution. Right. So the mm-hmm. um, the February Revolution was one thing. The October Revolution was another um, and uh, and the October Revolution kind of forced out the the people who were actually trying to negotiate a more um, egalitarian uh, form of of Russian politics. I, I don't expect you to be an Iranian scholar, but if we look at it functionally, then if we see what happened in Iran over the last half year, there was a lot of enthusiasm in the beginning. This was a leaderless movement that you couldn't uh, take the head off the snake, so, so so to speak, and there was a lot of enthusiasm about that and also that it started big and that they really had uh, a diverse uh, great diversity of participants in their demonstrations but reading your book this may not seem as good as i thought initially half a year ago that you're a leaderless revolution you start big and then you be then you become smaller and even the diverse part is also fragile for the iranians because they're only held together by their collective resistance to a certain regime. Yeah. How, how, how do you see this from a functional point of view? Yeah, there's a really helpful concept um, developed by a scholar named Mike, Mark Beisinger, um, which is a, what he calls a negative coalition. And a negative coalition is exactly as you say, it's a group of people who are able to come together in opposition to something. Um, but when it comes time to build the positive coalition, which is uh, what are we for? Um, they break apart and fragment and sometimes are in kind of really acute conflict with one another. And the argument goes that in, in the in the civil resistance literature anyway, that um, the more you can work on and build that positive coalition before or during the mass mobilization, um, the more effective the, the movement will be. It's very related to that argument that Kadivar made about the, the importance of political organizations and negotiating differences during um, or even before those moments of mass mobilization. Um, and so I think in this context, what we definitely saw was um, a sort of temporary negative coalition, w- which was, as you said, um, kind of leaderless in the sense that there wasn't a central authority of the movement. Um, there are certainly leaders, uh, you know, neighborhood level leaders and organizers who were um, were prominent and in some cases prominently um, arrested or even executed. But um, but I think the 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 key is that movements need a leadership. It doesn't have to be a leader, but but they do need leadership. And uh, the reason uh, the reasons are many. One is to sort of um, help guide the strategic direction of a movement. The second is to provide a credible um, capacity 
to continue mobilizing, even if repression increases. So, you know, without a leader, like the movement can't credibly say we can keep going as long as we want to until we get what we want. And so they they need that credible uh, lever. Um, the, the third reason is that they can enforce kind of tactical discipline um, and move together and maneuver together as a movement, as opposed to um, kind of having these local level improvisations that can then kind of make the entire movement look like one set of tactics when it isn't. Um, and then the last reason is because there needs to be some kind of um, negotiation and without like key uh, figures that are sort of authorized by the movement to engage in negotiation, um, all the, the, the regime has to do is kind of wait it out, you know, um, and if they're willing to wait, then they're probably going to be more, more likely to win or innovate strategies that can divide and rule the, the opposition. So this is very challenging in settings where, um, like in Iran, there was a very high degree of uh, organizing taking place among diaspora communities. Um, and so then you have the added uh, political dynamic of the sort of inside um, on the ground um, participants, and then the the people who are very important in the country but are not that are in exile for one reason or another, and and that always creates a tension within the potential coalition. So um, you know there are many ways that that um, that movements before have been able to overcome these types of dynamics. South Africa is a good example of that. But it takes a lot of time, and time is not always on the movement side. Uh, so I would say in the case of Iran, that conflict is not over yet. It hasn't fully run its course. There are still people every single day engaging in acts of resistance, sometimes quietly, sometimes not quietly, uh, against the regime. And so it's it's um, it's still a, a very live setting. So there's still, the, even though they started big, then they became smaller, even though in the beginning they were very focused on street demonstration, then they had to innovate and use other tactics. So that could be seen as the first phase, and then there's a building process to a second and a third phase. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think that's right. And I think um, it can change shape. Uh, the, the key players can change. The nature of the demands can change. The unity of the regime can change. There are many different factors over time that can that can change and that then kind of um, invite the need to strategically adapt. Um, and this is part of why leadership is important. Another thing that, of course, was very striking about the Iranian uprising, uh, I wouldn't call it a revolution just yet, uh, is that it was led by women. And it was very moving, I think, to see a generation of revolutionaries from the 70s left-wing patriarchs who weren't feminist when they were young, definitely were not feminist when they were young. They were saying, you know, the, the slogan of, of the revolution. And it seemed that, that the political subject of women is extremely strong in building coalitions between people in the cities, and people in the rural areas, many of the dichotomies that tend to polarize our societies, they can, they can be overcome when women are the subject of the revolution. Yeah, I mean, I think and this is a really powerful instance of the, the role of womanhood in creating a universality to the claim. Um, there are other cases like this. Um, Brazil, for example, I think during the its uh, pro-democracy movement had a very powerful kind of symbolic um, and practical commitment of uh, women and and women's 
demands represented and reflected in that uh, coalition. Um, Certainly the, the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo and Argentina are another really good example of that. Um, so we have in Latin America, a number of cases. In fact, Chile is another case against uh, in that anti-Pinochet movement um, where you did have um, uh, mothers of the disappeared um, as well engaging in um, open acts of resistance against Pinochet at a time when nobody was engaging in open acts of resistance. Um, so, you know, I, I think that what Zoe Marks and I have, have done is actually use the initial data set um, that's now expanded through 2019 and started to look at um, the demographic features of the movement to find out um, whether movements in which women are represented in higher numbers on the front lines, um, whether those movements that elevate, as you say, women's issues to be central to the, the demands of the, of the movement, um, whether movements that uh, have women leaders um, are more likely to succeed or not. And it turns out that the, the most impactful factor is, um, is the extent of women's participation. So movements that have about half or more of their frontline participants um, as women during peak events um, seem to be more likely to win and more likely to initiate democratic transitions. And it's exactly for the reasons you say that there's there, there are lots of other things that come along with large-scale women's frontline participation. Numbers, the ability to elicit defections, the tendency for repression against them to backfire, uh, and, and tactical innovations, which they, um, you know, women in many societies have access uh, to information, social knowledge, um, economic power um, that otherwise would be excluded from the movement's capacities if, if the movement was, you know, highly exclusionary toward women participants. I've been wondering whether the, if we think of the oppressors, uh, if we allow ourselves to think that they tend to have a conservative view of the world, then maybe for them, it's also from a conservative viewpoint that that women are fragile, you cannot allow yourself to beat women, whereas if it, if it was young men, it would be easier for them yeah. to strike down. And I felt there was this moment, this autumn in Iran, where 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 they actually didn't really know what to do because they they never they, they didn't mind be beating young men. They've been doing that every time there's been an uprising in Iran, but it seems to also paralyze conservatives. Yeah, I mean, it's it, they clearly have shown that they're willing to do it, but I think that it's much more likely to divide the ranks, right? Um, and it's much more likely to create divisions within the ruling elite about what is appropriate um, and what's permissible and what is existentially threatening to the legitimacy of the regime. And those types of disputes within the elite class um, are precisely the types of political moments and political opportunities that then, you know, a, a skilled movement can exploit. So, yeah, I think that's part of it. And, you know, we should just acknowledge that, you know, uh, this is kind of based on an essentialist understanding of, <laughs> of gender. You know, there, there's no real merit to the claim that like women are more peaceful or more vulnerable at X, Y, Z in a sort of essentialist sense. But certainly their roles in many societies, especially conservative societies, uh, create vulnerabilities uh, for them to participate. And so their actual participation signals a level of commitment 
that can unsettle the sort of moral status quo and the and the sort of balance of power between the opposition and the regime and can disturb the sort of gender hierarchies or the the expectations of gendered uh, behavior in a society. And so that that itself can open uh, kind of revolutionary opportunities. I, I don't want to sound like, like I'm doing conspiracy theories, but it's striking for me that we see a lot of authoritarian regimes strike down on abortion rights and women's liberation. And some places, what we thought were definite progressive wins, something that was institutionalized, that they challenge them. And I'm not saying they do that because they're afraid of progressive women, but, but is there a kind of a vague connection between the two? Yeah, I mean, I think that precisely because women's frontline participation and mass movements has been such a powerful driver of the spread of democracy in the 20th century, there has often been a backlash to that. And we're in another phase of backlash globally. Um, so we're seeing the sort of global democratic recession taking place at the same time as we're seeing crackdowns um, against mass movements, particularly mass movements in which women are featuring uh, prominently. And um, those crackdowns are extremely patriarchal in nature, right? So um, if you look at the places that have kind of far right or right populist um, leaders in power who have been passing you know, new laws to reassert the gender binary, reassert the gender hierarchy, um, associate the role of women in society um, with um, kind of conservative or nationalistic ideals like mothers of the nation or, you know, um, people who produce the next generation of soldiers to protect the nation, you know, uh, linking women's roles in society to a reproductive capacity that supports the state. And then um, also loosening loosening restrictions on domestic violence um, and you know lowering penalties for sexual abuse uh, and things like that um, are all kind of a package of of patriarchal reforms that we're seeing all over the world in places where kind of far right authoritarianism is ascendant. So I think that that is uh, that is not an accident. Um, and I don't know that it's directly related to a to an understanding of the sort of link between um, women's frontline participation in these movements and how it has toppled authoritarian regimes. Um, but uh, it's certainly linked to a reaction um, to empowered women um, engaging in acts of resistance around the world. Um, and uh, and by the way, LGBTQ people um, and their assertion of rights uh, around the world and, you know, a desire to lash back against that and kind of put people in their place. And that certainly um, can be associated with uh, people being less able to be represented uh, and empowered at, at the level of public leadership or movement leadership, et cetera. When I think of civil resistance, I immediately think of people against an oppressor, people who want liberation from an oppressive state, German occupation in, 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 in Denmark. But And I wonder how many of the experiences of that kind of civil resistance can be transferred to other kinds of, of civil resistance. You know, the green movements, the ecological movements and the climate movements, 
they are kind of civil resistance, but actually it can be very hard to say who's the adversary here, who's actually, especially now in Europe, there are no climate denialists left. They all, they all say the green stuff and then they don't do it. How much can these experiences be translated? What are the similarities and the difference between the situations? Yeah, well, I, I definitely think there are important differences um, with movements that are just trying to topple a state or eject a state um, and declare independence um, from movements that are basically trying to force a system change at a global level, um, creating kind of an unprecedented level of, of cooperation across states um, to um, fundamentally alter our relationship to the fossil fuel capitalism. Um, so we're talking about a global system level um, goal. And there are certainly movements of the past that have done similar things. The movement to abolish legalized uh, slavery, for example, in the 19th century um, was kind of a, a movement that, that had a, glo a global practice with deeply entrenched political, economic, social, and cultural interests backing it. And um, that movement took decades to affect the, the change that it wanted to see. In some countries like my own, there was a violent civil war fought over the issue. In other places, it was basically policed and, and, and coerced by colonial powers that wanted to, to you know, create a new system and a new regime. Um, but in the end, um, I think that the big lesson to learn from, from that movement, the, the sort of abolitionist movement of the 19th century for the climate movement today is that the way that the, the movement effectively succeeded was by capturing power in key states, right? So um, abolitionists um, became the, the dominant party in the UK. Uh, well, they, they became the party that had the veto in the UK and the parliament. And in the US, um, you know, they, they became the majority party. And, and, um, and so, you know, I think that if, if the, if the model holds today, then that just means that um, that parties that that are committed to climate reform um, have to win um, in order for there to be that level of cooperation. So there needs to be a connection between the street level and the parliamentary le level. I think so. I mean, um, if if what I'm if if the analogy holds, um, then that's clearly the 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 fastest route um, to, to getting what one wants. Um, the, you know, I think that there, there are real questions about the ability of, of political parties and the, the sort of current um, democracies around the world to win even, um, and also to, um, there, there are problems with countries that don't elect, you know, don't have elections for parties. Um, and the, the, the big difference between now and in the 19th century is how many countries um, there are represented in the world that basically both have a stake and a potential veto over these issues. There were fewer countries in the 19th century and there are more now, it's a much more complex game. Um, but, you know, governments are, they they have the power to regulate, to use carrots and sticks, um, to, um, to change the way that corporations extract or don't extract and which types of energy um, we we consume and produce. And so ultimately, cooperation among existing governments is is basically the 
the surest fire way to do it. It's just that we don't have very many governments with representation among kind of radically um, forward climate action parties. Do, do you see in in the in 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 the green movement a new? I, I, we've been surprised in 2019 to see how Greta Thunberg started in Sweden, and then people were inspired. And it seemed that places where you didn't really, where we'd say they didn't have a chance, you know, we'd see them in India, we'd see them in Brazil, where they didn't have the parliamentary connection, maybe, and there wasn't the 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 Green Party, it seemed that all of a sudden there was a, a global movement for green transition, not just like you had in 2003, a global movement against the Iraq war demonstrations on, on the same day. Is this a new thing in the history of civil resistance? Yeah, I mean, I certainly the durability of it is, is new. Um, and I think that there have been kind of global uh, mass mobilizations before, like for nuclear nonproliferation, for example, the peace, the global peace movement that you mentioned, the Iraq war example, and there are others. But these, these are good examples of times when there has been kind of transnational um, movement building opportunities. Um, and I think, it, you know, there, there are lots of cases where there have been really important solidarity actions um, related to specific countries' demands. So like East Timor and South Africa, there, there was a lot of international mobilization to support the claims of um, the independence movement and the anti-apartheid movement, respectively. Um, so we've, you know, we, we've had, even in our recent history, examples of, of global solidarity movements. But, um, but like I said, the, 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 the climate uh, movement is sort of a different animal in the sense that it's, it's a truly global collective action problem um, that the movement is trying to solve. And in order to do that, um, you know, uh, the, there will just need to be like a massive upscale in the number of people participating <laughs> in a relatively short amount of time to sort of create the political pressure um, that's needed to bring about these changes. I think we've shown as a, as a global uh, human family that we actually can do things in a coordinated way in a very short amount of time. Um, we learned that during COVID. Um, and so, you know, the, the question is, how do we build um, the political pressure required to bring about those kind of immediate uh, global shifts um, that that we now know we can do? You know, we see, we see a lot of young people who are very enthusiastic in 2019. And Funny thing is, they won the discourse. It, at least here in Europe, they won the discourse quite easily. European parliamentary elections—they're usually the most boring elections. You know, elect bureaucrats to a parliament that no one really watches, and all of a sudden, you had a green election for for the European Parliament. And, but then after that, there's been a, a, a wave of disappointment, a wave of fatigue, uh, and it's like this enthusiasm wasn't honored. And, and they felt let down. So now you have a lot of people saying, well, we must be more radical. We cannot wait. We've been polite for too long. We've been asking nicely. The stakes are so high. And they even claim that they want to do the same thing as, as, as we do. You're quite skeptical about, about violent resistance here, aren't you? Yes. I mean, I think um, it depends on your theory of change. Um, so my theory of change is that things don't happen without massive popular participation. And so anything that might inhibit massive par popular participation 
is going to inhibit the capacity of the movement to, to create change. And I think that um, over and over again, survey after survey um, of, uh, or, or sort of survey experiment after survey experiment, I'll say in the social science realm, shows us that um, you know, people are very skeptical of movements that use violence, particularly within democracies, um, and um, feel very alienated from those, not just the movement, but the claims that they make. Um, and that's heightened across identity differences, but it's 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 kind of present and replicated over and over again in, in, in social science research. And so, you know, I what the big question and the question that I and others need to answer is, okay, if if that's like not the the way forward, then how do you get these massive changes um, in the number of people who are willing to participate? Um, without, you know, it happening due to unacceptable catastrophic uh, change? Or how do you get elites to shift without that mass mobilization? You know, so um, elites have to shift. Mass mobilization is one method to that. The other method is small-scale mobilization, but that's specifically targeted at making the elites shift, right? Um, and so those are different models. Um, and I, I, like, you know, you, you've suggested I'm more persuaded by the latter two than by the use of violence. Uh, your your uh, phrase about the three and a half percent participation as crucial is often referred to here uh, by, 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 by the green movements. Uh, but what we're seeing here is something quite weird. Uh, and it, I think it has to do with climate being this weird animal that you spoke of earlier is that we have three and a half percent participating who want a faster and a more thorough green transition. But we also have three and a half percent on the other side saying this is too fast. You're ruining agriculture in this country. You're taking away our jobs. And, and <clears throat> so it seems that we have mass mobilization actually on, 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 on both sides. How far does the analogy go here? Yeah, I so I think it's really important to to know the scope of that descriptive finding. Um, so of course it emerges from um, that initial data set on anti-government movements or territorial movements, and it was also a historical descriptive, which means that it was something that we observed in the past. But as soon as we know it, and we as soon as people are trying to aim for it, we have no idea whether like the same political dynamics hold. Um, the the second piece about that is just that. You know the three and a half percent rule is 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 kind of more of a rule of thumb, um, in the sense that it's it suggests that there there are probably threshold effects, but um, but this is three and a half percent of the population actively participating at the front lines of um, of a key uh, uh, kind of political crisis, and um, what we don't know and can't measure is how many people supported the movement at the time or as you mentioned, the strength of the opposition. Um, and we don't, we just literally don't have that data. And so there's been some more recent analysis um, by a, a sociologist named Damon Santola that I actually find more helpful um, for thinking about how you induce large scale behavior change. And his threshold is 25% of the population. So 25% of the population in his simulated models begins to shift their behavior and that creates cascading effects that gets everybody else. And so um, 
you know, I think that uh, that's more indicative because the three and a half percent rule is people who are participating. It could be that that well over half or even 90 percent of the population is on board with this. Right. Um, or it could be that three and a half percent of the population participates and only five percent of the population is on board with this. And you're not going to see any meaningful change. So so I think um, if you think about 25 percent, I think that's a pretty safe and maybe even exaggerated number, but like a, a pretty safe bet for um, for at least simulated models of of system change. Well, thank you. That's very generous of you to correct your own theory with the with the other 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 yeah. researchers. But I think it's important because people are all the you know they're trying to they they feel despair and they're trying to measure roads to something that's hopeful. I have just one last question for you, which is that over the last four or five years, I don't know if it's ten years or two or three years. I think we've seen a lot of demonstrations, a lot of street protests, especially the year before the pandemic when there was an Iraq and Chile and India, a lot of places at, at, at the same time. And of course, it's also good TV, t- television. It's a, it, it travels easy on, on social media. So I think we have the sense, we have the impression here at the newspaper that we are following a lot of movements. They come faster, but also that they fail faster, that, yeah. that, that, that we see more of them, but that less of them succeed. How do you see this moment that we're in right now? Yeah, I mean, your intuition is is correct. Um, we definitely have more uh, people engaging in mass nonviolent resistance in the current decade than we have through the entire 20th. You know, the, the, the first two decades of the current century have seen more of these movements than the entire 20th century combined, which is kind of a staggering thing to consider. Um, on the other hand, like you said, um, they are fizzling out or really being defeated much more quickly um, than they used to be. And I think that there are a few things going on. One is that um, movements themselves have been uh, less able to build the type of organizational and um, kind of leaderful infrastructure to sustain themselves over a longer term. Part of that was because of COVID and part of it's because of active disruption by their opponents. And the second piece is that uh, governments have learned quite well how to suppress movements um, over the years because they've gotten an awful lot of practice (laughs) in the last (laughs) years um, dealing with these movements, sometimes losing, sometimes winning, um, and so have a a much greater sense of capability, um, both in terms of suppressing them and um, in a greater sense of knowledge that they're that they need to be dealt with. Um, I think that it was a big surprise in the late 1980s that people power movements were going to bring down uh, Soviet satellite states and in fact, eventually the Soviet Union. I just don't, it wasn't on people's radar, right? Now it's very much on people's radar. It's very much on the radar of of authoritarian leaders that this is something that can threaten their power and they don't want to allow it. and they want to um, to to use a variety of kind of uh, sophisticated and uh, political techniques to to disempower them. So, um, given that learning, I think what it means for movements is is that they need to be aware that when they are struggling against an autocrat, they're actually struggling against an entire authoritarian coalition that's learned very well um, how to how to deal with them. And, and so um, it does require um, a greater um, acuity or uh, acumen for um, for strategic thinking, uh, planning, and leadership. Well, I think that's a very good 
place to to end. There are lots of things I'd like to ask you about, but but we've already covered a lot of ground. Thank you so much for taking your time. It's very helpful. Thank you for your work. You've been more important than you realize for this little newspaper. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Det var min samtale med Erika Chenoweth, og den bog, som vi refererede til, hvor Chenoweths analyser er resumeret, og hvor Chenoweths meget store dokumentation er fremlagt, den hedder Civil Resistance, What Everyone Needs to Know. Den er relativt let læst, så jeg kan anbefale, at man bestiller den hjem hos sin boghandler, læser den selv, og så kan man høre samtalen her en gang til og se, hvordan klimabevægelserne alligevel adskiller sig fra alt det andet. I næste uge, der skal vi tale med en idehistoriker, der hedder Lorraine Daston, som har skrevet en helt fantastisk bog om, hvordan vores forhold til regler har udviklet sig i de sidste 2.500 år. Hun har lavet en meget stor bog, som er en civilisationshistorisk gennemgang af brugen af regler og reglers betydning. Historien om regler bliver således også til en historie om mennesket og dem, vi selv er. Den her udsendelse var ligesom de forrige, klippet og redigeret og produceret af vores gode venner og hjælper, Mads Adam Vener. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg håber, vi høres ved i næste uge.